This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil offer some thoughts on the latest indictment of former President Donald Trump, explore how country music has put itself on the front lines of the culture wars, and close with a look at the politics of existential threat, specifically whether it's possible to have normal politics when one political party becomes convinced that the other side poses an existential, existential threat to the country. Now let's go to the lab. Welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Bill Muck, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who's a professor of political science at Keene State College. Hey, Phil. Hey, Bill. How are you? Good. Welcome back. We've been uh, on and off and missing and, and taking some weeks. It's good to see you again. It's good seeing you, too. Yeah, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. We were going to record last week. Well, we, we had missed because we were traveling, and then we got back, and we were going to record last week, and then... My dad had a health scare and and then, uh, uh, yeah, I've been moved the last few days. I moved my son off to college, so I'm an empty nester now, but it's been, uh, it's been an emotional roller coaster the last week and a half. <laughs> yes. Life has a way of getting in the way of our best podcasting I plans, know, right? I know. <laughs> uh, no, this is, a, this is a big transition, right? I mean, uh, yeah, college and being at home, I, I just, it's a lot. I, I, I was sad and emotional just thinking about you all going through that. Cause we'll go through that next year. So, I mean, you have 18 years to plan for this. You'd think you'd be ready, but, uh, you know, then when it's time to actually, you know, drop him off, it was, it was, it was tough. I, my wife had a harder time sort of in the build up to it. And I, I think I was in full yeah. on like dad mode, you know, planning and packing and making sure everything was in place. And then we dropped him off and, you know, gave him a hug. And it was like, in, as soon as we got in the car, I I was just a mess. Oh. So. <laughs> and colleges have gotten better about that moment where like, I, I'm sure for Jack, they have probably had something right where everybody's together and like you go one way and they go the other and the parents probably yeah. all collectively go away and yep. have that reaction. And it's, it's smart, right? Cause you keep the kids, the, not the kids, the college students busy with their new endeavors. And then you let the parents go cry as they drive home. Yes. So yeah, the college, so Jack's going to Hamilton, which is an upstate New York. It's uh, it, it, I just continue to be impressed with them, but yeah, they have it set up where you, you do the move in in the morning and then they have like a lunch for the families and the president gives a speech and then you're, you're done and you go your separate ways, but they take the kids on these trips. So for like five days, like, uh, my son doesn't have access to his cell phone. It's just he and like 10 other kids camping and doing stuff. And it's perfect uh, because like, he doesn't yeah. have, you know, he doesn't have time to sit at home and uh, sit in his dorm and be homesick. He's like immediately, you know, having to meet people and do stuff. It, it's brilliant. I mean, it's been clearly thought through cause uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it's a tough, it's a tough transition for everybody. I guess you forget that, that, you know, going off to college is scary when, when you've never done it. So. Absolutely. And, and when you do an event like that, like you instantly like the, you know, the excitement, the anticipation, everybody suddenly becomes the best of friends and yeah. it's, it's a, it's a great way of doing it to colleges. Colleges have gotten so much better, right? In the olden <laughs> days, it was they weren't so thoughtful. I mean, that's part of the reason they're so expensive, is because yeah. there oh. there are a lot of things that go into it. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that's a it's a wonderful school and a wonderful transition. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be great. Now, I mean, empty nest empty nesting will be wonderful once we get used to it. But it is it is a transition. So before we started taping, I was saying that you now with this free time need to take a pickleball because everybody our age is playing pickleball yeah. and you and I are not playing pickleball. And this is the perfect time and excuse for you to get out on the pickleball court and, and stretch yourself stuff. It, it's, it, you, it is a good point. Pickleball is really popular around here, but also I pointed out to you 
<laughs> I'm not the most athletic of people. I, I listeners, I mean, this is you and I, I remember the thing that comes to mind is we had a conversation with Erica Chenoweth when they were on the podcast, because when we were in grad school together, I, I broke my foot running to first base. That's the level. <laughs> that's the extent of my athletic ability. And that was like when I was in good shape. So uh, pickleball <laughs> sounds fun, but I, it does also seem uh, moderately dangerous for someone of my lack with my lack of grace. I, I I remember that. I also remember us playing catch and the ball, like, you know, tipping off the top of your glove and then hitting the top of your head <laughs> and thinking like, oh, no, I think Phil has a concussion. So but pickleball, I think this is your speed. There's also something called walking soccer for older people. It's soccer, but you walk. Uh, this is another thing that you, that I think would be ideal for you. Pickleball, walking soccer, birding, uh, lots of things now that, you, you know, with your extra time. Walking soccer does seem like my. My pace. <laughs> my brother, so, my brother was Mr. Basketball State of Texas. I was state calculator champion. So that, I mean, that tells you something about like, uh, you know, where the athletic genes in our family went. So yeah, they went one way and not the other. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, hey, before we dive in, you want to remind everybody how they can stay connected with us. Yeah, you can uh, find all us and all of our information on the politics lab.com. Uh, we've got all the old episodes there. Um, and each, each week, each episode has its own little page and you can, um, find uh, related reading. So I've got, I think, five or six articles this week on the, we're going to talk about country music. We're going to talk about um, sort of the cultural divide and existential threat in politics. We've got articles on both of those things if you feel like reading more. And you can also find links to all of our social media um, and email and all of that stuff uh, as well. And it's all on thepoliticslab.com. All right, so we are going to start uh, with a look at yet one more indictment of the former president. Uh, Late Monday evening, Donald Trump and 18 allies were indicted in Georgia for their effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Uh, The case was brought by Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, whose office used a statute normally associated with mobsters, accusing the former president and his aides of engaging in criminal enterprises to keep in power. Uh, The nearly 100-page indictment details dozens of acts uh, by Trump or his allies to undo his defeat. Phil, you don't often see politicians charged with racketeering, but that is where Donald Trump and some of his closest associates find themselves. What do you make? So this is our fourth. What do you make of this latest indictment? Well, I mean, I think we we knew this was coming. We knew that this was likely to happen, that Georgia was likely to indict him. I, I, I you know, again, we, you and I are not legal scholars and maybe you were, saw this coming. I, I was surprised at the extent of this. Like, I, I'm not surprised yeah. that that uh, indictments came down. I'm also not surprised that others were indicted. I fully expected Rudy Giuliani to face criminal charges yes. in Georgia <laughs> for the stuff he did. But to see, you know, 18 allies and however many counts they had, like the just the extensive number of, um, of, of counts that are being charged, uh, was a little surprising to me. I, my first thought was, Whoa, I mean, you know, I, I don't, it'd be interesting to see. It would be interesting to hear from other people about whether they think it sort of took it too far. But, um, the, the racketeering stuff, I think it sounds like in Georgia, it, it is, you know, it's the definition of, of racketeering in Georgia fits this sort of thing. It was, I mean, this is like, you know, conspiracy to, to, uh, to, I mean, it, it involved fake electors and, you know, basically basically fraudulent signatures and fraudulent representations, people who fraudulently represented themselves as state electors because of this fake elector scheme. Um, I, you know, I, it'll, it'll be really fascinating to see it play out. I mean, I think 
it looks and it feels sort of similar to the the other January 6th stuff that we talked about with um, Jack Smith. But I, I think there's really important differences um, uh, in, in that this is a state level crime and that matters for a number of reasons. It matters because even if Trump is reelected, he can't he you know, even if he tries to pardon himself. Uh, even if the Supreme court were to allow that he can't pardon himself for state level crimes. So this is something that he's still facing there. And I think the other part of it that, that also matters is he's, you know, with four different criminal cases alone, plus, you know, investigations into the, the Trump, um, uh, the Trump, uh, organization and whatnot. I mean, the, one of the things that you've, I've seen lots of stories talking about is the, the, the level of resources that this is consuming, um, for Trump financial resources, money that's coming out of, you know, PACs and whatnot to cover these expenses. Certainly the time, like the amount of time that he's going to have to spend focusing on these sorts of things is all going to play a role. Um, I mean, we talked when we talked about the Jack Smith indictments that I, I just can't help but think that as even if it's not moving the needle now, as as these cases are basically going to be continuously in the news as these trials begin, I, I just can't help but feel like it's going to have an impact on on pe- how people perceive him. Um, and uh, that's a good thing. Um, I, I, what, what are your initial thoughts as you kind of, I, I watched the press conference as it played out? It was, yeah. I was you know, in a hotel uh, getting ready to move Jack into college, but it, it was kind of fascinating to watch it play out at the state level. Did you have like initial thoughts as you watched it all? Yeah, well, the first is that they shouldn't do these things so late at night. I mean, I get really tired. No breaking news after about 10 o'clock, right? And this was this was much, much later because they had to keep they had to bring the grand jury back. So it was late at night. And then, yes, yeah, so that was so that was my one beef with it. But I think what's what's really fascinating for me is that we're seeing a very different style to a prosecution out of Fannie Willis in Georgia than we are seeing a Jack Smith, right? So Jack Smith, there are a lot of potential crimes that at the federal level they could have charged him with, you know, inciting a riot, you know, trees and all of this. And Jack Smith was very tight and nimble and specific, right? Uh, not a lot of crimes, overwhelming evidence. Uh, what's happening in Georgia is this massive, when you talk about racketeering, um, you're going after 19 individuals and the way, you know, using sort of that racketeering statute sort of says that we're, we're painting a broad picture here. We're going to tell you stories about everybody, how they were involved. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be messy. But, but I think the, the philosophy there is we want to tell you the whole story. And only by appreciating this whole story can you appreciate the criminality that uh, was that weaved its way through all of these individuals. Now, I don't know which is going to be the best strategy. There's part of me that thinks that Jack Smith is is probably more likely to get a conviction because he's got a precise charge and there's overwhelming evidence. Um, I think the the Georgia. Uh, case is going to be fascinating to watch because you're going to have potentially, I don't know how many people they're going to try at once. I mean, she said they're going to try everybody together. I can't imagine that's going to be the case. But even if they break it up a little bit, it's going to be, you know, very, very cumbersome. So I, I'm i excited to kind of see them both play out and to see if one strategy is going to be better, prove better than the other, because they're, they're really, again, very stark different approaches to that. And I guess along those lines, like the fact that, that they went after you know, John Eastman, we'll talk about him later, Rudy Giuliani, to say that this isn't just the former president, that there was a broader network who were engaging in a criminal conspiracy was, I I tend to think accurate, but very bold to say that we're going to go to try and and prosecute all these individuals. So yeah, that struck me. 
I, yeah, I think so. I, I think it's good that it involved. I mean, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, those people who were involved in yeah. coming at John Eastman, the people who have come up with these schemes and advanced them and what should also face, you know, consequences. The whole idea of, you know, we talk a lot about how the president should face consequences because no one is above the law. It also, you know, the, we shouldn't lose sight of all the other people who were involved in this. And it wasn't just the Rudy Giuliani's, right? It was the state officials, the people who are state officials, the people who yes. were posing as uh, electors. Alternative are, electors yes, right, that are facing charges. And that's the way it should be. I, I sort of, I, I mean, again, this is just my uh, hunch, but I, I, I sort of expect, I would expect the Jack Smith to go after some of those other people eventually as well. And, and maybe this is, again, it's the, the sort of intentionality of focusing on the one because it's, you know, there's a, there's a political statement to it as well about the importance of democracy and, and whatnot. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see this play out. I think about about jury selection um, and who like being like, how do you find people who don't have sort of yeah. preconceived notions or ideas about these sorts of things? I mean, maybe that's easier than we realize because you and I are, you know, constantly, you know, neck deep in politics stuff. And, and I think we underestimate how many Americans just pay no attention to it, but um, sure. it'll be fascinating. But yes, the idea of serving on a jury with eight, with 19 defendants and this like complex oh. criminal story would be like sorting through all those different counts would be, uh, that would be a lot. But I also come back around to in, in each of these cases, there was a grand jury that was involved that that saw. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the part that when people kind of wonder whether or not they can get a conviction or whatever, I, I think that in each of these cases, like a grand jury was you know, not necessarily convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, but was convinced, um, to a reasonable amount that, that this, this was a crime that could be prosecuted. And, and I think, um, you know, in a, in a case like, a, if I remember correctly with the Georgia one, it was like every count that they brought the grand jury essentially approved. There was nothing that the grand jury said, no, that's, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna send that one forward. So, I mean, I think that also speaks to, yeah, I, again, there's a long ways to go with trial and all sorts of other stuff. But I think that does also speak to the strength of these cases when when you're not looking at it through a political lens, when you're looking at it through a legal and criminal lens. I think these 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 crimes are are oftentimes more straightforward than people realize. Well, and we're seeing different strategies to approach those. Right. So so you've got Jack Smith and you've got Fonnie Willis. They're pursuing a legal case. Donald Trump is still is still trying to fight this out in the political world. Right. And and I think both are effective. I think it's likely uh, that Trump is going to be found guilty in the legal arena because they've got the evidence against him. But it seems like he doesn't care so much about that. It's really about winning the political side. Um, and you, you were mentioning this, like, will these trials slowly chip away at his support? I think it's a really, really fascinating question. They haven't yet. And I think one thing, each indictment, you would think that multiple indictments would would undermine Trump's support. He's stronger now than he was six months ago yeah. in terms of his, his position within the Republican Party. You know, his approval rating is still not great, but it is strong among those who like Donald Trump. So, right. I mean, his ability to control the Republican Party is probably in a better position after being indicted four times. And I, I just I can't understand that because yeah. in no normal political world can a candidate somebody be indicted multiple times for very very serious crimes including trying to overturn overturn you know a democratic election and still be a viable political candidate i mean yeah. that that was prior to trump that was not 
never. That was not an right. option, right? I mean, you would be done. That was that would be the end of your political career. I did see someone who pointed out that that it, it's not that big of a deal because now the average president of the United States has faced almost two criminal indictments. <laughs> it's because every single one of them is Donald Trump. But uh, no, I mean, right. I think it's going to come back. We're going to talk about existential threats later on. And I think yeah. that explains part of it. But it's this deep, deep partisan divide. And, and one thing we do know about how people think about politics is uh, through, I mean, we know it's not even about politics. It's about how people view the world. We've talked about, you know, cognitive biases and information screens and whatnot, this tendency to ex- basically interpret information through your worldview. And, and it's where, you know, if, if, if where Trump has been so effective at sort of creating these political divides and playing on them that now it, it fits the narrative. And so if you were in on Trump, you just see this as again, the story he's been telling, which is that the system is out to get him. And, you know, he's trying to drain the swamp and the swamp is fighting back and all of that stuff. And so, but yeah, I mean, the power of, of partisanship and kind of worldview is, you know, you see the extent of that, of that here. It's, it's, it's disheartening. It's remarkable. Yeah. He has, as you were saying, he has created his own political reality that his supporters believe in. Uh, And, you know, they believe these prosecutions are political in nature. They believe he won the election, or at least still large majorities of the Republican Party. Um, And that's that's stunning in terms of the ability to shape uh, how people see the world. And Trump is very, very effective at that. You were saying a second ago that that there's the sort of legal strategy and then there's the political strategy and Trump's still all in on the political strategy. I I go back and forth between thinking that's because that's the only way he can operate, right? He sees anyone attacking him as an enemy. It's kind of classic narcissism. And so it's like he's just not uh, able to think sort of strategically. So even when lawyers are saying don't talk about this, he just can't he can't resist. So there's part of me that thinks it's just personality. There's another part of me that thinks that it is also strategy in that the political fight is also the legal fight in the sense of his his legal destiny is increasingly tied to whether he can win this election because if he can win in the election he can make a lot of this go away it's where the georgia charges are important because even if he wins he can't make them go away in the same way but he he could you know there could be i don't know court cases about what you know how, how do you reconcile a you know a convicted felon with the with the right. you know someone who's serving time with uh, someone who's been elected president but do you do you think it it is is it in, i guess that's my question is it intentional in that he knows that his his legal his legal battle doesn't look great and so if he can win the political battle that's like in, all the more important than before or is it just who he is I think it's probably a little bit of both, but I think more than anything, it's who he is. There was a, I think it was an article in the New York Times today talking about that from an early age, he has always punched back harder, right? So no matter what it was, whether it was political, whether it was legal, throughout his career, somebody attacked him, he would go 10 times after them, right? I mean, even more so. And that's his strategy. I don't know if that's going to be effective in this legal realm, right? I mean, I think there's going to be real pressure on some of these judges if, if he continues to go after the the judges, the prosecutors, right? At some point, the legal system will have to say, you can't do that. And as much as we don't want to put a president in jail or put a you know gag order on them, we will we will yeah. do that or we will speed the trial up. There are lots of things that they can do. So I I think it's the only tool he's got at this point, and he just continues to use it. Um, and and I think you're right. You were talking about the difference between the federal and the state. There may be some interesting interplay between the two. Um, you know, now that uh, Georgia's going after 
you know, the associates like Mark, Mark Meadows, for instance, the former chief of staff, um, you know, he may have gotten some sort of immunity deal from the feds, but he's not getting it from the state. Right. So does that increase the likelihood of some of these individuals flipping Rudy Giuliani? Right. I mean, are there conversations where they now say, hey, um, it's Trump's not going to be able to pardon me. I'm not going to be able to get out. Right. I I have to find a way of defending myself. And that may initially be at the state Hmm. level in this Georgia case, but then it could also play a role in the federal case, right? I mean, so they are going to be turning the screws against all of these individuals. So I I think that is going to be really, really interesting as well. It would be fascinating to see sort of behind the scenes how these decisions are being made because they also have to coordinate with each other around the the trials and all sorts of other stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, there's so much of this that just is different. Again, like he, Trump is not supposed to be speaking to co-defendants. And so, you know, (laughs) he's trying to run a presidential campaign, he's now having to deal with, with potential legal charges and the, the, the money that goes with that. But also, I mean, the, the people who are being charged with him are the, you know, we talk about how he sort of whittled it down to the true believers and the true believers are the ones who are also, you know, co-conspirators. And so right. he's not supposed to be communicating with them. And, and because of his personality, he's going to, I just can't imagine that he's going to do anything but barge through those limitations. And yeah. he's going to dig his hole deeper as a result. I, I saw that, you know, the rhetoric that he's using and whatnot. I saw a woman was arrested in Texas, I think it would fit, be yes. fitting if it was Texas for, for issuing a death threat against the judge in, in one of the cases already. So, I mean, this is, you know, as he plays this, uh, it's political, but it's, it's really kind of a, 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 a PR game, right? Where he's, he's playing up this kind of, you know, uh, uh, partisan battle, this, this, you know, good versus evil argument. Um, it might be effective in some ways, but it's going to make it worse in other ways as well. <laughs> And I wonder, does that does his behavior make it more likely that others flip against him? Right. I mean, because they see him going his way and he's uh, Donald Trump is is certainly demands loyalty, but will not be loyal to others. Right. right? And so will the Mark Meadows, the Rudy Giuliani's, the the others continue to support Trump or will they say, hey, I've got to worry about my own skin at this point? I mean, there was a story that came out yesterday or today that uh, Rudy, that Trump hasn't paid really Rudy Giuliani for any of his legal (laughs) services. You know, I mean, so at one point does Rudy, who was also sort of a loose cannon um, decided. I, I don't know. This is this is the drama that is going to play out over the next six months. And I I think it is going to consume our political system for sure. Rudy seems pretty detached from reality at this point. I don't know that, that, that not paying his bills is going to matter that much to him. Well, uh, no, I think that's right. He seems totally detached. But he also, just like Trump, is in real need of money, right? That's so true. some of it is, you know, Trump can continue to to, to fundraise and, and use his political action committee to fund his legal travails. I, I don't know. I don't know if Rudy's got yeah. a reserve to call on. I guess he, he was thinking about selling his house. So, well, and the small, uh, yeah. that doesn't even get to the small actors, right? I mean, I, when we small actors, right? right? The, the non-household names, the state level actors who, who were involved in this, who are now facing, uh, you know, criminal charges. If I were one of them, I would, you know, I, like I would be doing whatever I could to save my ass to, you know, if, if that, if, if I needed to. Right. And the the Georgia case is mandatory jail time. I want to say like minimum five years or something, whereas, you know, the federal one's a little more complicated like that. You know, but but still, yeah, they I think they're all very worried and and having some serious conversations with their lawyers. So, well, hey, should we should we talk about country music? Of course. Yes, let's do it. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, all right. So as our listeners know, this podcast is primarily about politics, but country music comes in a close second. <laughs> um, so we thought we would take a talk a little bit about the latest controversy in Nashville. Uh, for our listeners who aren't big country music fans, Jason Aldean is a multi-platinum recording artist and five-time Grammy nominee who has charted over 25 number one hits. That's, that's astonishing that's on the country charts over the past 20 years. He's also an outspoken conservative, and his latest single, Try That in a Small Town, uh, has become the focal point of political activists on both sides. The song, which Aldine claims is a homage to his small town childhood, and I don't think he's even from a small <laughs> town, but whatever, we'll yeah. get to that. Yeah. <laughs> Takes on themes that venture awfully close to the line of racism. So we're going to play a little bit of the song, and then we'll come back and talk a bit more about it. All right, here we go. So the video for the song features shots of Black Lives Matter protests and was filmed in front of a courthouse with a history of racial violence. Uh, CMT pulled the video, but that controversy sent, sent Aldine's song to number one uh, on the Hot 100 charts. Critics say that the song is a thinly veiled call to violence and Aldine's song isn't alone. Uh, the sense of resentment and anger and try that in a small town now seems to run through much of mainstream country music. And it matches the national divide over political identity and white nationalism that is central to American politics these days. Phil, you grew up on country music and you've done some research looking at the uh, the changing nature of country music lyrics. Um, is Aldine's song representative of broader change of the genre? What does it tell us about the culture wars and our political state? Just just give us all of your country music research right. knowledge. <laughs> well, I think there's there's so much to this question. I think it's really fascinating. I mean, there's the the sort of uh, you know small question about like you know Aldine's like you know is what he's saying here you know. He's arguing that it's just that in a small town we're a community and we take care of each other and yeah. we, you know traditional values. But I mean, this is kind of classic, like you know what we've talked about in the past. This is kind of classic sort of dog whistle politics as well, right? So it's this small town versus the big city, and the big city sort of represents diversity and all of that. And so there's this question of you know what is the true meaning? Is the hubbub behind it you know justified or whatever? It's a little easier to do because Aldine is so outspoken. I mean, he's he's like made yeah. state statements about it. But I, I think the bigger question is, or one of the sort of more fascinating points to me is the way in which country music has sort of become politicized. I, you know, I grew up in the South. I grew up, my parents, you know, I grew up listening to classic country and, and that was what, you know, all through high school and everything, that was what my, my sort of musical world was. So I've always been sort of interested in this, but that you can see there's like this, this, uh, shift over time from kind of, you know, as country music and sort of middle of the 20th century becomes, you know, an increasingly popular form of music. 
Um, and as that sort of evolves in the eighties and nineties and, and through today there. So what, one of the things that I've, I've done with this research with other colleagues in my department, we've, we've gone back and looked at like top 100 songs, you know, top hits each year in country music and looked at sort of the themes that come up and, and you go back to like early, you know, like mid 20th century and, and country music was, uh, I, I don't know that you would say apolitical, but it was, it was much more progressive. Like you go back and you, you look at sort of early country music and there was lots of, it was very much kind of poor man, you know, pro union. It was like working class, all of that, which at the time was really in line with what we would think of as sort of democratic values and, and whatnot. Um, and it was as country music became sort of increasingly popular, you saw changes in the sort of themes and messages of country music, along with the culture war shifts in the U.S. So as you get into the, like the 80s and 90s, there's less of that and there's less sort of music about love and romance. And there's more of the kind of big city versus country life stuff, more of the themes of, you know, crime. I, I think of like, you know, I don't know, I think of uh, there, you know, know, Hank Williams Jr. and, and, uh, um, oh, why, uh, Charlie Daniels. I mean, there are these artists yeah, sure. that, that were sort of, you know, big that kind of talked about, I mean, you even saw this in movies in some ways, but it became a big part of, of country music and you saw that shift. And then there's another shift that occurs, a bigger shift that kind of, we, that is sort of more kind of inconclusive because it's still playing out that happens with Obama, right? So the same sort of debates that happened in um, American politics as we had a black president and the cult, the sort of, you know, the, the culture wars take on this, you know, increasingly racial element, you see a big shift in country music there as well. So the difference between like the 1950s and 60s, 40s, 50s, 60s country music, the idea of, you know, whatever, working, working hard for a little bit of money and, you know, being pro-union and all of this stuff versus today. And like you turn on country music television and it's, it is like sort of ostentatious wealth, right? It's like flashy and yeah. big boats and big trucks. And it's it, it, like what it represents has changed and it has shifted over the years along with politics. And so it, it, it's not surprising to see this. I mean, this has become sort of the music to some extent of that same group of people. If we talk about like who supports Trump and we talk about the idea of stop the steal and the idea that America used to look one way and it doesn't look that way anymore. Right. Um, but what we mean by, I, I think to some extent you saw that theme throughout country music that, it, you know, America doesn't look like it used to. But at one point that was like, you know, the message was, um, it doesn't look like it used to in that it used to be that you worked hard and you made your money and, and whatever. And now it's like, it doesn't look like it used to in that, like, you know, the big cities are taking over. And I mean, this all Dean idea, right? This argument that, you know, cuss on a cop and stomp on, I mean, why didn't play the second verse of that song goes into yes. like getting his grand grandfather's gun. And I mean, it is like this sort of bitterness and anger that that was not a part of sort of country music in the past. So what's fascinating is you can see the political changes in America shift in country music as well. And so all of that kind of, you know, that, that sort of white nationalism and whatnot has its elements here as well. And, 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 you know, I, I don't want to go on too long. You and I texted about it a little bit as well, that you've had almost had these sort of offshoots. So now you have like Americana music and whatnot yes. that is not like mainstream radio music. That's much more progressive. That's really much more like kind of traditional country music. And this has become, you know, very political. There's an element of this. And I think we'll come back to this in the next topic as well, in which I've seen sort of similar shifts, again, being a Southern boy 
in religion, right? Where, where religion has become increasingly politicized. And so the, the, you know, the, the culture, whether it's religion, whether it's music has sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, not consumed, absorbed or taken on those same sort of cultural divisions that we're seeing play out in, in politics. I mean, you, you probably have never listened to country music in your life. Although I did give you Lyle Levitt tickets one point when we were in grad school and you went to that. So what, what are your thoughts when you, when you listen to Jason Aldean? Well, it's really it's pretty extraordinary, right? So, because you, yeah, I don't, I did, I, I, I don't know much about country music, but I will say this incident has caused me to do quite a bit of reading about it. And then there's been, we're not the only one talking about this. There's been a bunch of really great podcasts thinking about, you know, what this this means in terms of the song and and the evolution of country music. And I think for me, you kind of talked about this. That's the really interesting thing. Is like, what in what ways? is country music evolving and why is it evolving? Right. And you talk about it's, it's drifting in a more, I heard people talk about like bro country, right? That mm-hmm. country music is, it's, it's very masculine. Now yep. you're seeing, I mean, there are women, but, the, but you're sort of, you're seeing more of that, like dominant bro country about your Jeeps and your beers and your small towns. Like that is really defining much of the movement. And one of the things, one of the podcasts I, I was I was listening to, they talked about that some of that is in reaction to uh, other voices actually starting to embrace country music, right? So, like you talked about Americana, they I guess they used to call it like alt country, is that yeah. uh, you know, and the way in which Americana is embracing diversity and gender identity, um, and that that may be prompting some of this as well, right? Who is country music, and if you've got an infiltration by the other, right? The other being people of color, uh, by women, uh, by, you know, a, a diverse LGBTQ audience that is starting to embrace this uh, this medium, right? That also could cause some of that pushback, right? And in that way, you're right. It is it is mimicking uh, the identity politics that are dividing us at a, at a at a political level. So it's, I mean, it's it's terrifying, but it's also really fascinating that we're seeing this play out through through music, which which shouldn't surprise us, right? Music is is a, a place for politics, but it's this the interesting example in country music is really again really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, so I you know I, my research is on nationalism and national identity. When you're looking at nationalism and trying to figure out like what are the key themes and how a country or how people identify themselves, you look at the culture. You look at you know you historically it's been you look at the literature or you look at what and this is a good example of that where it's a great way to sort of gauge where we are as a country. And I think, um, the, the, the sort of uproar about his song tells you something about where we are as a country. But I think the flip side of that is also important to remember, which is the massive success of, in this case of, of Aldine, right? Since, since CMT pulled this video, his, like his, the, the, I've, one of the articles that I've posted talks about it, like his, uh, downloads like soared like, you know, a thousand percent or whatever. Um, it's surged to number one on the, you know, not, not on the, just the country charts, but on the sort of overall hot 100 charts. So it's been actually a huge success for Aldine, but it's also important to, to recognize that, like, I think we think of country music and this is, this is maybe sort of the, a good analogy for thinking about politics. We think of country music as this, you know, kind of Southern, uh, rural thing, but country music's now the most, it is, and it has been for a while, the most popular, most listened to like genre yeah. in, in the country. I mean, the, some of the biggest, uh, country, I feel like the, I think I saw recently the, the biggest country music, um, 
market in the country is New York City, right? So I mean, it's it is it, it it's again where like the the language of the it, it's the themes like speak to people, and so even for people who didn't grow up in a small town, who have never lived in a small town, the sort of that something about that theme of like anger and lashing out and resentment or whatever is what people are latching onto, and so it's I think important to recognize that this is part of that sort of cultural divide that's playing out not just as a regional thing, not just as like, you know, some subset of people living in rural Texas or Alabama or whatever. This is part of that nationwide divide that we we see playing out. This is really interesting because it gets to this question of who are the real Americans? Um, and and I think that what was fascinating is that uh, when the song first comes out, it's first released, it's it doesn't it's not doing gangbusters. Right. Yeah. It is only after this controversy that it shoots to number one, which then begs the question, is it really about the music or is it about the politics? Right. If it was about the music when they first released it, you would think the the you know, the song itself would drive it up the charts. No, it was it was the political reaction. So, I mean, again, it speaks to this identity who are the real Americans? Aldine is making an argument. You know, who are the real Americans? They're the ones that live in small towns uh, and that cities are hell holes. And in some ways, it also gets to this. You were talking about this idea of nationalism, white nationalism. Who are the outsiders? And are they're coming for us, right? They're coming, you know, our country's being, being more diverse. We've got people coming across the borders. Now they're trying to take country music. Like, we're the real Americans. We've got to stake our claim on all of this. And I, I again, it is really, it, it's extraordinary the way in which uh, music is now a reflection of our politics in a very explicit way. And I, I think you could argue that there was probably hints of racism running throughout country music for a long period of time. <laughs> sure. yep. But Altine is taking he's he's not even trying to. Right. He's you know, he's he's showing imagery of Black Lives Matters protests and saying they're the and, villains. They're the criminals. Right. And talking they're about come getting his grandfather's gun. gun. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Right. That that sort of he connects the dots in a way that I don't think wasn't always the case, right? Should I say it doesn't seem like it was always the case in country music. Well, I mean, I, there, there, there was an article in the Atlantic that I put up on the website as well. It talked about how, you know, Aldine and Trump sort of explain each other. And it's a similar thing, right? Like that's what people talk about with Trump is that uh, unlike in the, in the past presidents might sort of touch on these themes, but they never said stuff outright or explicitly. And Trump does. And this feels like, again, like, you know, there's a debate or discussion about whether Aldine intentionally chose this courthouse that has like a history of lynching and, and, you know, uh, uh, racial violence and whatnot, or, or not. But again, like the, regardless, the decision to include Black Lives Matter protests in a song about getting your gun or whatever is, you know, is like there's nothing not subtle about it anymore. <laughs> yes. Right. And so it's, it is where it's just getting increasingly uh, sort of on the surface. The other part that I think about when I when we talk about this is, you know, we, we've we've ta- I feel like we've talked in the past, but within political science, there's been discussion about, you know, when you get into um, social capital and, and um Robert Putnam did lots of research on this as well. But, you know, for a democracy, it's really important for different types of people to interact with each other, right? You have to have some faith in your fellow citizens in order for you to have a faith in a democracy in which people are making those, uh, making decisions um, for everyone. And so uh, what we've seen in the United States, this is, you know, the bowling alone stuff that Robert Putnam has written about is that increasingly we are sort of segmented into these like bonding groups where we identify and and interact with people who are like us. And we don't interact with people who aren't like us. And this is 
is part of the you know the big sort where people have moved to places that are you know more politically aligned to them but it also has to do there's been lots of writing on how social media has done this how i mean there's there's all sorts of stuff that shows that like you can look at um, like Amazon purchases, the books that people read, like conservatives are reading entirely different books than liberals, you know, the news that we watch that. So it's like where we live in these different informational worlds. And this seems like yet another example of that. This is a song that, you know, if you're not in country music, you maybe haven't heard anything about this, right? I don't listen. I gave up on like, uh, you know, on the air country music a number of years ago, I still listen mostly predominantly to like Americana and roots music and whatnot. Um, and those, you know, there's lots of, again, more sort of progressive themes in that music, but I, I wasn't, I knew who Jason Aldean was. I was familiar with it, but I didn't, I had not heard this song until this came along. And so it's like a whole nother ecosystem in which, you know, the, the ideas aren't, you know, we're not crossing, uh, you're not, we're not interacting with other people. It allows people to feel like everyone else is like me. I'm not, you know, I'm not alone in this and that's, you know, dangerous for democracy. It's yet another way in which this kind of new algorithm based world that we live in is, is is, is problematic for us. Because you're right. We think about it for social media and we think about it how we consume our news, but we don't think about it how we consume our music. But certainly those that is crazy, creating those bubbles. But what's really fascinating about that, though, is, is that I think music, the politics separates, but the music bleeds across those lines, right? So you think about country music. The country music of today is... is is been influenced by hip-hop and rap and, and rock and roll, right? Sure. I mean, all of those... That type of music has snuck in. But I think what you're seeing is that we kind of defend our politics about this as well. It, it made me think about the Dixie Chicks. And some of our listeners may remember going all the way back. This was during the George W. Bush administration. The Dixie Chicks, they were like the, the, the hottest thing yep. in country music and, and actually all music. And they came out critical of George W. Bush and the Iraq War. And they were ostracized. Uh, and they were pushed out of the the country music scene and not, I mean, people protested them. And I, I think there are some interesting parallels when you think about the ways in which country music reflects sort of conservative values and increasingly conservative and I would say xenophobic values of, of sort of the Trump era. I mean, that's the test, right? Is that, is this about the music or is it about the politics or the values or the culture? And the, the test would be, uh, you know, again, the, the country music of today does not look like traditional country music at all. Like you said, it has drawn on, you know, hip hop and all sorts of other things. And so you, like you turn on country music and there's like, you know, rap and all sorts of stuff involved. So it's not necessarily the music. If at the same time you took, you know, a Jason Aldean sound and you put some super liberal, you know, message to it, it would not get the airplay. Right. And so it, that's the, that's, I, I think of like, a, you know, Tyler yes. Childers is another example of a singer out there who, um, is, you know, he is, I think, I don't remember where he's from somewhere in the South Tennessee, Kentucky, something like that maybe West Virginia. Um, anyway, uh, and he writes about like all the sort of what you would think of as cultural themes of, you know, growing up in poverty and the coal mine and all of that and was really popular and then had a number of songs that were made it clear that he was, you know, quite progressive on religious themes and whatnot. And, and the number of people who had sort of a meltdown about that was really interesting. And so again, people who had been drawn to his sound, who suddenly when the, you know, when the lyrics don't line up with their view are not interested, it's again, you know, that's that's where the it's the themes that are uniting country music more than the sounds at this point. It's not the you know, it's not the steel guitar or whatever that makes a country music. It's the values that they're expressing. 
I think this is really, this is maybe a perfect transition to our next topic where we start to think about religion and and some of those dynamics. Should we, should we jump there? Yeah, let's do it. So uh, we're going to close with one of our deep, almost philosophical looks at the dynamics of our political system. Specifically, we're going to think about the concept of existential threat. And, And why we're doing that is because so much of our current political discourse revolves around the idea of the other side posing an existential threat to our way of life, our very existence. And while we see existential language used across the political spectrum, the most dramatic and extreme versions are currently seen on the political right. Um, As David French noted in a column this week, quote, in their minds, the left is so evil and represents such an existential threat that any accommodation of it undermines the forces of light in their great battle against the forces of darkness. We see it, uh, that's the end of the quote, uh, we see it regularly in the apocalyptic rhetoric of mainstream politicians. So for instance, just this week, Representative Matt Gates speaking to Trump supporters at the Iowa State Fair with the former president looking on approvingly stated, quote, I cannot stand these people that are destroying our country. Only through force do we make any change in a corrupt town like Washington, D.C., Trump regularly says his political opponents have destroyed the country. This language leaves no space for dialogue or compromise. In fact, those on the right who refuse the extremist position are viewed as traitors. Uh, In the end, the movement is driven by the belief that desperate times call for desperate measures. So, Bill, you found several examples of this that stood out to you this week. Um, You texted me a couple of these, one about mainstream Christians expressing concern over Jesus being too woke and the other a pro-coup justification offered by Trump uh, lawyer and co-conspirator John Eastman. You want to start with those? You want to walk us through those a little bit? Yeah, 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 because I think they're really, really, really sort of uh, emblematic of what we're talking about. And I think unintentionally they connect back to our our talk about country music. I think this this sort of is a running. Yeah. So. All right. So so this week there was the the editor in chief of Christianity Today, Russell Moore. He gave an interview on NPR in which he warned that evangelical Christianity is moving too far to the right. Um, He specifically noted that even Jesus's teachings are considered weak and too woke. Uh, In the interview, he told NPR that multiple pastors had told him that they would quote the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the part that says, turn the other cheek. Uh, so when they were doing this, when they were preaching, someone would come up afterwards and inevitably ask, where did you get those liberal talking points? Uh, and he says, what was alarming to me is that in most of these scenarios, when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ, the response would not be, I apologize. The response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak, uh, Moore said. Uh, when we get to the point where teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive to us, we are in a crisis, according to Moore. Phil, we'll get to the second example in a minute, but this is really something. The teachings of Christ are too woke for Christians, right? I mean, this is this is really, really, really sort of fascinating as we think about the ways in which politics may be driving both our, our, our music, but also our religion in this circumstance. A hundred percent. I mean, this has been one of the themes of, uh, you know, religion. So I, that's the other, you know, I, I look at nationalism, yeah. but I also study religion and, and what, you know, there's been, uh, over the past really kind of 50 years, a decline in the number, but it's been pretty stark in the last 20 years, a decline in the number of people who are attending church or, or view themselves as religious. And one of the things that pops up is this sort of stuff, right? That, that it feels like when you go to church, you are, it's less about, um, the, 
the the sort of biblical message uh, and more about sort of political expectations or you know being told how you should how how those biblical teachings should influence how you vote. What, what's fascinating about this is that uh, you know 50 years ago the idea was that religious people shouldn't be involved in politics at all. This is part of what gave rise to the the sort of um, the the pro life movement, the anti abortion movement in the United States was you know evangelical conservatives had seen politics as totally separate from religion. But there was this moment where politicians and some evangelical leaders saw this as a moment where they could have influence in in the direction of the country. And so we've come so far now where the two are so fused. It's not even fused. It's that the politics has supplanted the religion. So, you know, it's back to the idea again. It's the I mean, it tells you everything when when the, you know, the, that example, again, this is an anecdote, but, but Russell Moore is, you know, a well-known, um, this is, he's not making this up, right? Um, this idea that when you hear the teachings of Jesus, literal words of, you know, the, the literally from the Bible, the words of Jesus, um, uh, I, I don't want to, when I say literal words of Jesus, I'm, I don't want to dwell, delve. I'm not, I'm not yeah. implying that I view the Bible as literal, but, um, you know, when you're reading the, 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 a quote of Jesus and your response is to push back against it because it doesn't line up with your political views, that tells you which of those identities, religious or political is more important to you. And that's, you know, very clearly what's, what's playing out here. And it feels like they have fused, but they fused in a way in which the religious ideas are um, secondary, or they play a role of pursuing a, a political agenda. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it is. It is really remarkable. It, it's really fascinating. And I, I like the way that you frame that, right? And you talked about them fusing, but with one clearly playing a more dominant role, right? Because if you think about, you know, in in theory, you know, you're you're if you're a Christian, you should be grounded in the great book, right? The, the Bible, like the teachings of Jesus Christ should be what inform your view. And what we're seeing is those teachings contrast with the political reality of today for, for many, many uh, Christian conservatives, right? So how do you, how do you deal with that, that difference, right? And, and the reality is, or what's happened is they've said, well, our, the politics trumps the religion. Um, and I, yeah, it's an extraordinary moment to be there. And I think there are real political implications to this as well, right? Because it's not as if they are setting aside the religion and it's saying, no, we're no longer Christian. They continue to believe that this is a faith-driven movement, but the political implications of their language and their position is that violence is okay, right? So, you know, Matt Gates saying that, I can't stand these people, you know, we maybe the only solution is political violence, right? And, and then, you know, Christians telling their pastor, hey, we can't turn the other cheek anymore, right? It is now time for violence. So all of this sort of is building towards the increased likelihood of of political violence playing out in the United States, right? All driven by a religious justification, which is really just masquerading as, as, as it's just really politics. Yeah. Yeah. The, the politics have become a religion, right? I mean, this is, so yes. we've talked a little bit about this and I, I find this really fascinating again, as somebody who grew up in an evangelical church and whatnot, the extent to which like politics in my adult lifetime has come to look like evangelical religion in that it is faith-based, right? I mean, we go back to Donald Trump saying, Donald Trump says, you know, X is true. And even, even if the evidence doesn't, you know, indicates that that's not right, 
you're judged by your faith, right? Are you willingness, willing to go along, um, you know, have faith in this sort of idea or movement? And so politics has become sort of faith-based in that same way. So people aren't looking at policies and weighing which one's best or which one makes the most sense or which one's the fairest. They're, they're expected to sort of follow the, you know, their party doctrine. And I think you see that, you know, again, a little bit on both sides, but I, I think the, the, that influence of, again, evangelical Christians stepping into politics, it has impacted the religion, but it has also impacted politics and how people view politics. And so you have this kind of bleeding of, of the two. And, and when politics becomes your religion, that's when I, you know, very easily you can look at, I, again, I, you know, we've, we've talked about religious violence on here, but there's a path of religious violence in which people feel like the world doesn't line up with how they think it should be. And there's, it's what tends to happen is they start to view the world in these kind of holy war ways. Well, if, if I'm right and I know I'm right and the other side disagrees with me, well, then they're, they're not just wrong. They're evil. They're set on our destruction. And that quickly becomes a justification for violence. And, and that is the pattern that you saw with groups like Al Qaeda. It's the pattern that you see with, with, you know, groups on the right and the left, but you see, yes, you see it playing out in lots. I mean, it was the pattern that you saw playing out in the, 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 the people, um, involved in the Oklahoma city bombing, right? These kind of religious elements, you know, abortion clinic bombings. It is, it is playing out in American politics, but at this like large scale level in which, you know, when it's faith-based, you know, you're right. And you know, you're good. Then the end of the op- people who disagree with you aren't just disagreeing. They're evil, right? They're, 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 they're wrong and, and, uh, and, and bad. Right. And then it therefore justifies any extra constitutional activities that you pursue. So yep. thinking January 6th, right? Well, maybe this is a perfect transition to the sort of second yeah. example. Uh, and this one comes from John Eastman. A lawyer, he's been in the news, a lawyer who was central to Trump's effort to overturn the election. Uh, he wrote multiple memos laying out various paths for delaying and overturning the election. Uh, in the days before January 6th, he personally tried to tried to persuade uh, Vice President Mike Pence that he had the constitutional authority to reject or delay the vote. Um, to circle back to our opening topic, he is also one of the 18 Trump allies indicted in the Georgia case. So he's he's central. Uh, but what we're talking specific, why we're talking specifically about Eastman is he gave an interview uh, that was released this week. And in that interview, he offers a justification for the efforts surrounding January 6th. And if we read between the lines a justification for overthrowing the government. So let's listen to some audio and then we'll kind of talk about the the argument that he's making. Certainly not in 1960, but also not in 2000, where the stakes about the very existential threat that the country is under as great as they are. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, handing over to John Kennedy instead of Richard Nixon, who's gonna deal with the Cold War. Um, we're, we're, we are talking about whether we are going to, as a nation, completely repudiate every one of our founding principles, uh, which is what the modern left wing, which is in control of the Democrat Party, believes, that we are the root of all evil in the world and we have to be eradicated. This is an existential threat to the very survivability, not just of our nation, but, but of the uh, example that our nation, properly understood, provides to the world. That's the stakes. And Trump seems to understand that in a way a lot of Republican establishment types in Washington don't. And it's a reason. 
come to a different conclusion. And look, our founders lay this case out. The prudential judgment they make in the Declaration of Independence is the same one. There's actually a provision in the Declaration of Independence that says, you know, a, a, a people will suffer abuses while they remain sufferable, or tolerable while they remain tolerable. Mm -hmm. But at some point, the abuses become so intolerable that it is not only their right, but their duty to alter or abolish the existing government. So that's the question. Have the abuses and the threat of abuses become so intolerable uh, that we have to be willing to push back to So that wasn't that wasn't the cleanest editing cut there, but, but I think the idea comes across. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, no, this one. So the first one, I think there's a couple things in the two clips. I mean, the one where he's talking about the existential threat that Democrats, the Joe Biden, sleepy Joe Biden poses to the founding principles, but also to their existence. Right. He talks about that they want to eradicate us. Um, so there's there's a physical threat that he, they are going to attack and kill you potentially. And they're also going to undermine your principles. And then that second piece is the one that really gave me pause because he's going back to the Declaration of Independence and saying the founding father said when it got this bad, it was OK to overthrow the system. Right. And so he's he's sort of he's tiptoeing right up to that line. Some have argued it's over the line. I think it's pretty darn close to over the line, saying that the the moment is so dangerous that it should justify anything, even violence, you know, even overthrowing our, our constitutional republic, because that's the nature of the threat. I mean, the, the, it's humbling when you hear such extremist arguments there. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is the perfect example of this idea of the thinking of an existential threat, right? That they, that, so when we talk about existential threat, like uh, it, that can be a sort of physical threat, like some, you know, I, you know, Jews, Jews in, in, uh, in, you know, the, in World War II faced an existent, a literal existential yeah. threat, but oftentimes existential yeah. threats are about perception and the perceived existential threat that they're coming for my culture or my way of life that I am, you know, threatened in that way. And this is how this is playing out, right? Like that they're out to destroy us. The, 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 the danger is that that one, that perceived threat oftentimes starts to drift into this idea that it is a literal threat. Um, yes. And that's kind of what you see here, right? I, I feel like you've seen that play out over the last decade in conservative talking points from they're opposed to the traditional way of life to as you, you know, as we were quoting Matt Gates, like they're coming for us, right? That they, they despise us. That's how Trump talks about it, right? That, you know, he's the, the one person they can, they can, they can trust. The, the fascinating thing for me is that, you know, this idea of an existential threat is like key when you're looking at like religious nationalism and how countries be fuse sort of politics with religion existential threats a really big part of that. And so, you know, you look, go back to Ireland, right. And, and England was perceived, you know, uh, meant, uh, was, was an existential threat to sort of Irish culture, but it fell along these sort of religious divides. And so it made sense for Ireland and Catholicism to sort of become fused. Same thing with Poland and, and Russia and, and whatnot. The, the, the fascinating thing in the United States is that that perceived threat is internal, right? We're not talking about yes. like, you know, these historic examples where some other country is coming to colonize or to impose their empire. This is, you know, talking about like the, the biggest enemy, right. To the American way of life is not China is not, you know, the Soviet union. It's not, you know, whatever it is other Americans. Right. And that's, that's, I mean, that is terrifying. Um, but it's, you know, the result of again, 40 years of kind of a, a, a conservative media enterprise to sort of shape, you know, politics along these views. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a the Eastman interview is is a peek behind the curtain, 
Uh, and and you, we've talked a lot about uh, the demonizing the other and the danger of all of that and, exi- you know, existential crisis and whatnot. But it's an entirely different thing when you hear somebody make that argument and say specifically that, you know, the moment, you know, that that dr- drag queens reading at story time is an existential threat that we need to stop. And and if that means we use violence, we have to use violence because they're coming for you. Right. And that's the. It's just, yeah, it is It is a little terrifying that there are voices out there um, pushing this narrative. And, and interesting, you know, it fuses with Donald Trump, right? I mean, Donald Trump is doing all of this to preserve his own political future. But he has found this narrative, this argument that has traction. So he is going to exhaust that purely for self-interested motives. I don't think Donald Trump believes in any of this stuff, right? He believes in his own political power and whatever gets him to that place. Uh, but he will use these arguments and and throw gasoline on the you know on this fire to 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 preserve himself. And and I think the the net result is 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 really potentially dangerous, right? I, I just uh, yeah, I, I think the the Republican Party, the conservative movement, has a real reckoning in terms of the the extremist ideology that is, is that is running through it these days. It does feel like this moment we're in is the, this sort of confluence of lots of things, right? It is this confluence yeah. of sort of a, you know, Rush Limbaugh approach to politics and a sort of Newt Gingrich approach to politics, which is about we can win if we kind of play up this idea. And I mean, this is what gives, you know, way to Fox News and all of that. But it also is come. It, it's that combined with a moment in our country where there is real change change happening, right? I mean, like economic change, you know, demographic change, there's all sorts of stuff going on. And so you have these viewpoints that have, are these talking points that have been out there and that have been useful for a while, suddenly being met with a changing country and, and people are latching on to them in ways that hadn't necessarily played out in the past. And this is where the faith-based aspect of it comes along because, you know, if you were logical, you would say, look, I drag, you know, drag shows, um, you know, no one has been killed because of a drag show. You know, there are g- shootings all the time. You would, you know, you would be able to say, look, I, I, you know, this is not the crisis that we imagine. But when it's faith based, right, you're just taking the talking points. You're you're going with them, and those talking points, though, that faith based sort of approach to things is useful because it, it it gives you a justification or a reason for, you know, your lifestyle. I don't, I'm not comfortable with this diversity and that's okay because look at all, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? The, I have all these people who are telling me that drag shows and, you know, whatever big cities are dangerous and all of that. And so I don't have to deal with the discomfort of a changing world. I can just latch on to this idea that, that, that change is bad. And by fighting it, I am good. And that they are coming for you, right? And this is where it connects back to the yeah. Jason Aldean song, right? I mean, what he is basically saying is they're coming for you. You are the real Americans. We need to protect you and your way of life. And, you know, violence may be necessary. And it's not even that we need to protect you. It's that that you would be wrong not to act, right? They're coming for you yes. and they're coming yes. for like, that's this tying it back to founding principles and all of this other stuff. It's that, you know, that what was, what America was intended to be is under attack. And it's not that you should be upset about it. It's that you have a duty to act, right? Like they're, they are, they're coming for you, but they're coming for, you know, what is good. And so that, what that calls for, you know, this is in, in, in regular life, right? Like when, when the country goes to war and it's a legitimate war, people, are called on to sacrifice and use violence and all of that because of the cause. And that's where all of this is, again, getting sort of muddled together in a way that it's just, I mean, 
you know, the, the, the opportunity for a spark to set all of this off is really is, um, I, I think, uh, uh, most people don't realize just how, you know, how dangerous a place we are right now. And I, I think there, there is a, there's long-term traction for this argument in the United States and globally, right? As, as we continue to see movements of people, right, whether it's climate-driven or economic-driven or politically-driven, we are going to see people moving around the world. And in the United States, that means that it is going to lead to a diversification of, of the, the populace, right? And so that argument is going to be there just as we're seeing it in Europe and elsewhere, right, where it, it falls along these identity lies, lines, these outsiders, whatever those outsiders are. Sometimes literal outsiders, but in the case of the United States, it's Joe Biden, right? I mean, it's the whitest, oldest guy possible. Right. He represents that existential threat, right. um, and if you can make Joe Biden into that kind of threat, um, it shows the—I don't know—again, the, the traction that that this type of, of frame has uh, to political audiences. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's why a lot of political scientists, a lot of comparative politics, are warning of some type of civil war because the kindling is all there. Is uh, as, as Jim Waller has talked about as well. Well, this is uplifting, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so, sometimes you just got to get into it, Phil. So well, I, we're back. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating. I go back, you know, it's the same thing when I, you know, all my research is on religious war and, and whatnot. And, and it can, you know, it is depressing when you're studying, you know, war crimes and genocide and all this other stuff. But it's also fascinating to understand, you know, what, you know, again, it's, it's fascinating. It's important to recognize the warning signs, what's leading us down this path or whatever. And, and, and to that extent, like we, I think we're not intending to be bleak. It's it's meant to you know help un, help people yeah. understand where we are and why we're there, why we've gotten to that point in the country, and it's back to the idea again we've talked about before, where good governance comes in, right? If if the American economy were surging, if all these other things, these would be uh, it would take some of the heat out of these these arguments, and but we have a government that's been you know crippled for for 50 years, it seems like, and, and, uh, and, um, you know, a, a world that has evolved in that time and people are feeling left behind. That's, that's right. I mean, it, it is in some ways political science explains all of this really, really, really well. And, and you're right. The point of understanding it is that we can have conversations about it and, and hopefully over time sort of undermine some of these arguments. So yeah, this, oh, this is a good one, Phil. I mean, it was intense. Uh, you want to remind, I'm sure they're all, all our listeners are going to want to go to the webpage now and, and find the readings. I want to remind them how they can stay connected. Yeah. So the politics lab.com is, is the place to go. And if you go there and click on this week's episode, I've got, I think three articles on, uh, the, the Aldine, uh, song um, really about the sort of politics of country music um, which I think are, is sort of fascinating and then uh, a couple of pieces on the, um, the, the the two stories we were we were just talking about the, the um, idea that Jesus is too woke and then also on the, the Eastman so um, yeah all of that's available for more reading if you found this stuff interesting and, and, and you can find that at politicslab.com and we should be now that the academic year is summer sort of coming to an end. We'll have a more regular schedule so listeners can look forward to that. And and uh, barring something else, I'll see you next week, Phil. I'll see you on Wednesday, Bill. All right. Bye, Phil. Bye. <laughs>